Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you our listeners from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. A few weeks ago, I began a conversation on this show with author Patricia King about her extraordinary journey of reinventing herself over the course of her career. In part one of our conversation, Pat talked about her years as an international management consultant, working with Fortune 50 companies like PepsiCo, Chase Bank, Pfizer, and publishing five business books, including Never Work for a Jerk, a bestseller which landed her on the Oprah Winfrey Show. In today's conversation, part two with Pat, we'll talk about how she made the transition to yet another career, starting in her 50s as a historical mystery writer under the pen name Anna Maria Alfieri. It was not a road easily traveled, but Pat will reveal how she developed her writing and research skills to produce finely detailed historical mysteries and get a publisher to take a chance on a first-time novelist. Her early mysteries, all set in South America, garnered critical acclaim. The Washington Post said of her debut novel, as both history and mystery, City of Silver Glitters. And the Christian Science Monitor chose her blood tango as one of 10 must-read thrillers. Some years later, she moved across the Atlantic to set her second series of historical mysteries in British East Africa. Her Vera and Tolliver series are stories that capture the beauty and complexities of a colonial culture in a foreign land. They've been described as out of Africa meets Agatha Christie. These adventures in turn have led to a surprising chapter in Pat King's real life story, a transcontinental effort to transform the future of young Maasai girls in Kenya, helping to keep them in school by providing them with one simple everyday item that was missing in their lives, an unforeseen plot twist to be sure. So now, let's once again meet our guest, Patricia King, a.k.a. Anna Maria Alfieri. Pat, Anna Maria, welcome back to the show. I couldn't be more delighted to be here. So when we last met our heroine in the last show, <laughs> we were about to, uh, I think we've finished most of your business career, but, but you had a one step that was transitional, and that was... Um, you know, recognizing that you were, you know, needed to deal with potential burnout in your consulting job, uh, you decided to transition out of that, but you still decided to work with your husband, um, uh, David, and a partner to help him launch a firm. And this was sort of a transitional period where you also were working on your novel. Uh, so talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get launched right into the, your career from that point on. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, we might have said last time that uh, what I really wanted to be when I was nine years old was a novelist. Right. Uh, but I, I didn't uh, do that. Uh, and when I decided that I uh, had to uh, stop uh, my burnout job, I thought I was going to just write. But David and his partner didn't really know how to start a business or run a business. They were marketing experts. so And they said they couldn't do it without me. And I thought it was a good idea. So I told them I would put the business together and I would launch it. And once it was a going concern, I said, once this kid goes to kindergarten, I'm out of here. So that's that was my 
uh, thought. But I really enjoyed doing the job uh, because it was, um, as we said, a kind of uh, uh, laboratory uh, to uh, apply myself all the principles of management and leadership that I had taught in those companies uh, for all those years. So I enjoyed doing it. And I also found that if you really manage well, you don't have to manage constantly. Right. So I got to every once in a while, just close the door and work on, uh, on my novel writing skills. Uh, and, uh, during, and so I stayed with the company until uh, it was bought out. Uh, 10 years later, but, um, and I was, a, uh, I was the CEO and it ran perfectly, but there were only 23 employees. It wasn't like running General Motors or something. Right. Still, still a lot of work. So that, that's, uh, so while you were doing this now, so now you're working toward your uh, being a novelist. And uh, I recall in, we, in some of our previous conversations, you've talked about so this is where agents come in <laughs> and, you know, getting the right agent is often a factor. And, and you had a couple of experiences. And if I have the chronology right, I think that you mentioned that there was still a lot of hesitancy. Well, you were, you know, they, they were stuck on your business books. And was there one more book? Was it, was Monster Boss? Was that in, in the mix right here? Yeah, well, uh, Monster Boss is what got me an agent for my fiction. Ah. Uh, the agent for my nonfiction encouraged me to write fiction. He loved the way I wrote uh, anecdotes. And she's, he said, you're a storyteller. You should be writing fiction. And he had a lot of good advice for me, but he didn't like the idea of historical novels of the kind that I was uh, writing. And so uh, I, I had to find an agent who was going to represent what I wanted to write. He wanted to tell me what to write, but I, I don't think a really serious or uh, maybe a, a really uh, passionate writer of historical fiction could say, oh, I'll just write contemporary women in jeopardy novels. You know, right. I, I don't think, uh, I, at least I couldn't do that. I never wrote to the market and he wanted me to do that. And he told me uh, actually when he read, the beginning of City of Silver, that it would never make it into the hardcover market. And it was beginning to look like he was right mm. <laughs> because I couldn't find, I found an agent who, who read it and liked it uh, over a course of many years. Uh, and it took a while, of course, for me to have a, a, a sa- what I thought was a saleable novel. Uh, but that by then we were into the 2000s and, uh, Somebody wrote it, and my main character was a woman, and he thought I should change my main character to a man. Uh, Uh, And there were all these women in the story who had a terrible problem, and this man was going to swoop in and save the day. Does that sound like me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hello. You know, I was a warrior for women's rights on Wall Street. You think I'm going to give up now? No, no. So I... um, I had to find another agent, but it was very hard uh, because um, I I was a woman of a certain age. By then, I was well into my sixties, and I uh, uh, and except for that one guy who wanted me to change what the way I was writing my story, I couldn't find anybody who would take what I was doing uh, and uh, and, uh, and work with it. So. Um, 
somebody, my friends in Mystery Writers of America, which I had joined because my uh, my, my old agent said it was the most congenial group of, of fiction writers in, in New York, and he was right about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of my buddies told me he met an agent. He thought it should be my agent. But I didn't want to uh, just send another query letter and have it ignored or rejected. And I really wanted to get back in the game. I had been out of publishing anything for for uh, pretty much a decade at that point. And I knew that because my most recent nonfiction was never worked for a jerk. And it was, it had been in print for 17 years. That book had legs and it uh, had gotten me on the Oprah show, as you said. So I didn't propose to that agent, my, uh, my novel. I, uh, I wrote her a query letter to do a, sequel to Never Work for a Jerk called Monster Boss. And uh, and she, I mailed it. Two days later, she called me up. She didn't, mm-hmm. not only, she, not only did she not ignore it, she called me up right away. And uh, she spoke to me on the phone and she invited me to lunch the following day. And when I, uh, when we had lunch, she was, she was terrific. She was very pointed in her questions. She was very focused on how, what was going to make this book better and so forth. And she said, I can sell this book. And she did. Mm. Then I had to write it. So I wrote <laughs> So then I, I, you know, I, it was a similar topic. So I, I, uh, I wrote that book in a year and a half. Uh, it was finished and accepted for publication. And when she sent me the second half of the advance on royalties, she put a little post-it on it that said, what's next? And so I sent her an email that said, I have, you know, I talked about, I have a novel. And she called me up and she said, I didn't know you wrote fiction. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah. And, and I said, yes, I have this historical novel. It takes place in South America in 1650. And she said, all right, send me 30 pages. <laughs> As if I was asking her to give up chocolate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was a terrible uh, thing to do. But so I, I chopped off the first 30 pages and emailed them to her. She called me the next morning and she said, is this book written? And I said, yes. And she said, print it out and get it to me by three o'clock this afternoon. I'm going away for the weekend and I want to read it. And she called me back on Monday and she said, I can sell this book. Once she uh, submitted it for publication, it sold in four days. Wow. Uh, uh, to St. Martin's Press. Uh, hello. And I, I thought, you know, it was like, okay, but this was year eight after I finished writing it. So it took a lot. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, I was working on the second novel, which also got published. And so did the third one. So, wow. you know, it, yeah. uh, it, it so, so basically a 10 year meteoric success. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yes, I was an overnight success. Right. Well, <laughs> it just, just took, took 10 years. <laughs> 10 years. Once I was in the room, 
everybody liked me, but getting the door open took eight years. Yeah. And then getting dressed and ready to present myself inside the room took another two. But there I was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the first book. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, as a, not a fiction writer, but a journalist, I'm always interested in how people, uh, uh, discover their stories and how you do your research and so forth. So um, starting off with, um, um, I guess it's uh, City of Silver, right? That was the first one. Mm-hmm. So how did, that, that was kind of an interesting story you told me about. Uh, it's almost, an, you know, an accidental discovery from, you know, again, from another uh, adventure, you know, just a, a trip to the Galapagos. Is that right? Yeah, we, uh, you know, um I had actually started to write a book about Paraguay, the history of Paraguay, uh, and also inspired by the same person, a, a, a close friend who uh, worked in uh, an NGOs in South in South America, mm-hmm. and uh, and. David and I went to Galapagos, and and Steve and Nati, these friends of ours, were in La Paz then. He was working for USAID. And they took us. uh, We got to there. We left when we left Galapagos. We made our way slowly to uh, to La Paz, uh, and uh, we left their apartment in La Paz, uh, carrying our water for a week. And we drove on the Altiplano, which is like the surface of the moon. There's not Uh a blade of grass. There's not a mosquito. There's nothing. There's no snakes. There's nothing lives up there. Uh, And eventually, after two days, one and a half of which we were driving on what looked like the moon, we arrived at a sign that said, Benvenutos in Potosi. I had never heard of Potosi. And it said, declared by UNESCO part of the patrimony of humanity in 1986. And and I said, what the heck is the part of the patrimony of humanity doing on the surface of the moon? Hmm. But when we got inside, what we saw was the most enchanting 17th century Spanish city with uh, architecture that is called Mestizo Baroque. Hmm. It's Mestizo because it's Baroque style, uh, which was a European style, but the, the carvings were not the carvings of cherubs and rose garlands. They were the carvings of, uh, of South American native people's imagination. And it's gorgeous. Uh, it's really such a beautiful place. And I got very interested in the history of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were there, we were in a, a convent uh, that was a cloistered convent for Spanish noble women. And David said to me, why would a noblewoman uh, want to lock herself in the convent? Well, I went to Catholic school for 17 years, and, and uh, David uh, uh, didn't really understand that mm. culture. So I explained, I thought of, uh, I gave him six reasons why a Spanish woman, noblewoman would find herself in the convent. And they started walking around in my head, mm. these women with these. And so the first 
story was inspired by that trip. And, and then when I came home, I was desperate to find out the history of the place. In 1650, it was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. It was the same size as London. It, 160,000 people lived at 13,500 feet. It's the highest city on earth. Wow. And it was in 1650 the richest city on earth. And its economy affected the economy of the entire world. Pat, we're going to hold on a second here. So we're going to take a break, but let's hold that thought. We're right in the middle of the story, and we're going to keep our listeners hanging on this. So we're going to finish our story, but we're going to first take a quick break. Uh, Don't go away, folks. We'll be back with much more from Patricia King, a.k.a. Anna Maria Alfieri, right after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reingold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with, with Patricia King about her latest chapter in her life as the historical mystery writer Anna Maria Alfieri. And before the break, we were just talking to Pat. She was explaining to us sort of the origin of the setting of her first novel, City of Silver in South America, and about the city of Potasi, which most of us up here have never heard of. But in, in historical context, it was one, once one of the, as she just described, one of the wealthiest city in the world. So let's continue with our story about the, our first novel, and then we'll transition to next novels. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so anyway, I, I became fixated with, uh, with uh, researching uh, the history of the place. And uh, the more I researched it, the more I learned about it, the more vivid uh, my story became in my mind. And it's Spanish colonialism. Uh, this is uh, uh, part, it wasn't uh it isn't part of Peru now, but in 1650, it was part of the Spanish Viceroyalty of Peru. Hmm. 
and it was ruled by the Spanish. And like all colonial uh, stories, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of conflict. Right. There's conflict between the people who are settled in the place, and in this place they were getting extraordinarily rich, but they resented the fact that the the silver, because that's why it was so so it was there was a mountain of silver there. Uh, called the Cerro Rico, which is Rich Mountain. And because they had those, they were at 13,500 feet, life there was incredibly difficult. The air is very rarefied. If a mm-hmm. woman couldn't give birth in the city, if she got pregnant, she, a, a Spanish woman, she'd have to go down a few thousand feet to another place to give birth and raise her child for a year because European babies couldn't survive. So it wasn't that easy. And they resented the uh, that the Spanish king got a, a big hunk of all the money that they took right. out all the silver that they took out of the mountain. So there's the, there's the colonial uh, overseers and the settlers, they have conflicts. Of course, there's conflicts between the settlers and the indigenous people who are doing most of the terrible work. And then there's conflicts between the tribes of, of uh, the indigenous people and between the Basques and the Andalusians <laughs> from Spain. So wow. there's, this is a very good uh, thing to take uh, a colonial period if you want right. to write murder mysteries, because people have a lot of reasons to want to kill each other. Right. right. Yeah. And it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, this is just, you know, in some ways, you know, the when you talk about colonialism, I mean, so so it's a hemispheric reflection of the northern hemisphere, you know, and our revolution of you know colonialism and you know, interestingly, the same sort of elements of you know Native Americans and resentment toward the crown. In this case, you know, the, the English crown, not the Spanish crown, but certainly is a, a, a rich recipe for for conflict and for a murder mystery. Sure. <laughs> and before we go on with this, you know, just I'm just curious, I. I assume that uh, your pen name, you, you wanted to have some separation between your nonfiction work and your fiction work and not people to confuse like, what, who, wait a minute, I thought Patricia Ring was writing about monster bosses. You know, what happened? What is, what's this about? So was that, was that uh, uh, in your thinking and, and, how, and how did you pick, come up with a name? Well, um, actually it was a different, a different reason. Uh, Patricia King uh, was a, uh, my name because King was my first husband's uh, last name. And when that marriage broke up, I kept it because I, I had already established my, uh, my uh, practice of, of uh, consulting uh, as Patricia King uh, Associates. And I also had uh, a daughter whose last name was King. And my second husband, when I married him, didn't care what my name was. <laughs> he was all right with that. Uh, but um, I was when Monster Boss came out, I had uh, a radio interview. Uh, and uh, it was on the radio in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, uh, the radio uh, interviewer, when he got on with me, uh, he said, uh, I hope you don't mind. 
I Googled you and you're a televangelist. <laughs> and oh, right. I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, uh oh. Uh, and so once I got off the, uh, and, and my first book was about to be going to print. So if I was going to do something, I had to do it right away. Uh, and so it was kind of an emergency. (laughs) So I, I, um, uh, once I finished that 20 minute interview, I, Googled Patricia King, which was my name, which I had right. never done. I understand that people always Google their own name, but I never did. And there were uh, 160 pages uh, in 27 seconds from Google, and the first 154 pages were her. <laughs> so wow. I knew that I couldn't, uh, and I didn't want people to think that my books were written by somebody else and she was publishing uh uh not necessarily fiction but she had she was publishing a lot and she was very popular i i had never heard of that but i had to do something and i called my agent and she said you've got to pick a pick another name you've got to pick it right away and i thought about what my name would be and I decided to take my mother's first name. My mother's name was Anna Maria. Mm -hmm. And her mother's maiden name, which was Alfieri. And the reason I did that was that my female forebears were brilliant and capable women, but they never had my opportunities. And so I wanted to honor them. I found out later that Anna Maria Alfieri was my great-grandmother's name. My mother, wow. mother's mother was, was the original Anna Maria Alfieri. Italian women don't change their last names when they marry. Uh, but in America, the, when they lived in America, they did because it was a way to do it. So uh, my, my grandmother, uh, Anna Maria, who had been born... In fact, my grandmother, my my grandmother Alfieri was born in Italy, but she came here when she was three. So, uh, and I like the name. I called my agent. I said, what do you think? And she said, oh, it's a lovely name. Some of my friends think I chose it because whenever I'm on a list, I'm at the top of the list. (laughs) Well, not bad, not bad. But I didn't choose it for that. I chose it in honor of those women who never had my opportunities, and uh, and to uh, uh, to identify with them. Yeah. Well, that's a very nice backstory. I'm, I'm glad. I I don't think I've ever heard that exactly. So, anyway. Um, so, listen. Before we go on to uh, shifting to your uh, Africa stories, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your work. Um, and about how you work, and I know that you you spend a lot of uh, detail work on working on the details of your stories, and uh, you have a certain philosophy about writing historical mysteries and who your heroes are and what you think makes a good historical mystery. Uh, talk about that, or just a historical novel. Period. Yeah, I, I think a historical novel should be a time machine that brings the reader back to a place in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most wonderful compliment I ever get 
uh, is when somebody says, I felt like I was there. I felt uh-huh. like I was in Buenos Aires when, uh, uh, when all of that was happening. I, thought, I felt like I was in Paraguay during that war. Um, and so to do that, I do a lot of research and I have to be able to, in order to write the story, I have to be able to be there with my characters. Mm. So I have to feel what it feels like to them to be where they are in that place at that time. And, uh, and I don't write outlines. I don't decide what's going to happen as if I were the God of the story. I put my characters in a, in a situation and then they have to deal with it and be who they are in it. And I think that's the only real way to, uh, to do that. But um, it, it, once I do that, I, don't, I just despise historical novels which tell you a story that could have taken place anywhere in any time because the plot has certain elements to the plot and that's how the plot is going to go. Uh, I want mine to have uh, the history and the story so woven together that you couldn't separate them. And so that when the reader is learning the history, the reader is learning the history by learning the story, by enjoying the story. It's very important to me that that's the way that should happen. Uh, Herman Wook's The Winds of War is, is, was the first example I ever read where I thought, this is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of wonderful historical novels around where that's what happens. Right. And, uh, and so, um, and I didn't always think I was going to write murder mysteries, but I started hanging around with mystery writers. And, and I discovered in writing, because I wrote five practice novels before I wrote City of Silver that was that I thought was worthy of publication. But uh, if you choose the right dead body, story has to come in to it. So that uh, the, the easiest example to talk about, because everybody knows who she was, uh, is Blood Tango. Mm-hmm. Blood Tango takes place in, in uh, Buenos Aires, uh, during the most dramatic uh, time in Argentine history, the the uh, it starts when Juan Perón is the most powerful man. Uh, he loses his power a couple of days after his 50th birthday. Uh, the day after that, he winds up in jail. Two days later, he's they have to let him out of jail, and he becomes the most powerful person again. It's it's a it's a perfect story. Uh, and historians don't agree on what part, if any, Evita played in the story of Juan Perón's uh, fall and rise again. Hmm. And so, uh, but it was easy, you know. Um, I, I, uh, I uh, decided. I guess. I mean, I thought of uh, this. This way to do it. Uh, So the dead body is a young woman who is very enamored with Evita. She's Evita at that point is not married to Peron, but she's a a soap opera star on the radio. Mm. And so she's very well known. And this young girl 
sweeps up uh, the shop, the uh, the modista, the the designer shop mm-hmm. where uh, the dressmaker uh, f- uh, owned by the dressmaker for Evita Peron, uh, and Duarte at that point was her was her name, and so that young girl fashions herself after Evita, and she's the same size as Evita. So, and she, she colors her hair and she, and she fixes it the way Evita does. And she wears the kind of makeup Evita does. And she is stabbed to death. Mm. And very early in the story, she, and so when the police come, a policeman comes to investigate this body that's found in front of the dress shop. Right. The question is, did somebody try, was somebody trying to kill Evita? And so all the history has to come out. The right. investigation <laughs> involves the history. Right. So uh, all the suspects have some political issue or they have some connection to the girl that shows more the social background of the city where the story takes place. Right. So it's all woven right in. And right. that's fun to do. It's really fun to do. Yeah, that's a great challenge. I mean, so basically it's when the story and the history become one, you know, blended. And um, uh, and I think that uh, you mentioned me too. One of the things that, I, that always uh, um, interested me was, you know, uh, when people say to, to how do you write stories and, you know, what do you write about? You know, the, the, um, the stock answers will write what you know. And I think that you gave me a response to that, which I thought was great, which, which was, uh, no, 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 write what fascinates you. And I think that really, that tells it because when that, when it fascinates then then you, be, you get to really know it and feel it. And I think that's what you're describing. Is that right? Yes, yes sure. I mean, uh, I don't think what I learned in my everyday life is all that compelling. Uh, but uh, I, I write what fascinates me. The history fascinates me. The characters, the people who are in them uh, fascinate me. The place always fascinates me. Uh, and so if if I can f- be fascinated, then I have at least a snowman's chance of fascinating somebody else. Uh, but uh, if, if it doesn't really interest me, uh, I know people who write wonderful police procedurals, uh, cur- current day police procedurals, and it's because they're fascinated by all the latest technology in detection. That's mm-hmm. what fascinates them. And so they can fascinate me, even though I'm not particularly fascinated with that. They make it fascinating. So I can make fascinating what fascinates me. At least I hope I can. Right, right. I think the the other uh, piece of advice that I think I remember uh, reading, perhaps in, uh, in a previous interview with you, was I think uh, it was from... Um, uh, one of your uh, teachers uh, in high school or Catholic school about um, exciting people uh, with all their senses uh, in, in terms of the details of stories. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, that was in college. My mentor, oh, college. Okay. my uh, uh, department head, Sister Mary Catherine O'Connor, she is still in the back of my head and she uh, still 
um, scolds me if I don't get all the commas in the right no. place. <laughs> and, 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 uh, but uh, she said, you have to, you have to uh, appeal to all the senses if you're going to write, uh, write fiction. And she started out by, te- by uh, teaching us. She would send us to places that we, uh, when we were studying 18th century literature, we, uh, you know, uh, uh, we went to colonial houses. And when we uh, were studying medieval, uh, we went to the, to the, uh, um, to the Metropolitan Museum or to the cloisters. But we went to the cloisters and we had to go on our own. And the school was in, my college was in uh, near Marstown, New Jersey. So we took the train and we went there and then we had a quiz. She gave us quizzes, pop quiz. What was, how, what was the parking lot of the cloisters? What did it look like? Hmm. Uh, what kinds of trees were around? Uh, were they in bloom or not? And if you couldn't answer those questions, and it wasn't a test to make sure you actually went there. It was a test to uh, make sure that you were observing right. what right. was around you because right. she said nobody, and you have to know, you have to know what the place smells like. You have to know what it, the wind feels like. You have to make your characters experience. Right. And so let's, let's take another break now. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with uh, Anna Maria Alfieri and we'll switch cover the, uh, cover the, uh, the, her trip across the Atlantic to her Africa series. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mac. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Patricia King about her life under the pen name uh, Anna Maria Alfieri. Uh, we were, before the break, we were talking about her South American novels, and we're going to 
go across the Atlantic to her Africa series. But before we do, I just wanted to mention to you, you could learn more about Anna Marie Alfieri and see reviews of her historical mysteries by visiting her website, www.annamariaalfieri.com. And on my website, rowellresources.com, you can read an interview with her uh, on the Gotham Writers website as well, as well as, uh, you know, if, if your friends miss this episode, they can click on my website too uh, and uh, hear the episode as a podcast. So let's, let's now go to your Africa series and uh, tell me a little bit about it. It's actually, you've got two characters in it, right? Vera and the Vera and Tolliver series, right? Yeah, well, Vera and Tolliver is what the publisher always called it, but they're three. I see. Uh, and in this, I did do something very consciously because I was going to write a series. Uh, uh, I had written three novels um, that took place in South America, but there, would, there was really no connection between the stories uh, to speak of. So, um, and publishers like a series because if it if it catches on and you can go uh you can bring your readers along to the next book the next book the next book right and and of course when a new book comes out if somebody learns about that that didn't know about the series they start with the first one this is something publishers like a lot and i mm-hmm. like i there's some uh, uh writers that i whose series i just got addicted to and went all through them so I needed to pick a place where I wanted to spend year after year after year. Hmm. And I had visited, I had always been fascinated with Africa and I chose the setting to be just before the time of out of Africa. Uh, Karen Blixen actually shows up in the series, Hmm. but, uh, uh, and there are real people that, uh, readers would know if they are fans of Out of Africa, which a lot of people are, uh, because some of the people who are who are in the book Out of Africa and in the movie Out of Africa uh, are in that series. So it's British East Africa, which is now Kenya, mm-hmm. and it and it starts in 1911, and each book has uh, the sin that's in the commandment. Uh, and then another sin that doesn't have a commandment that I have the audacity to think it should have a commandment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the first, uh, it's strange gods, and uh, and uh, it's uh, and the sin is uh, colonial takeover. Right. Uh, so there's there's, there's uh, uh, that uh, the worship of strange gods. What does that mean? And then uh, colonialism. But there are three characters. There's Vera, uh, whose name is Macintosh in book one. And she is uh, 19 and she is the daughter of Scottish missionaries. So she was born there. And she is not really the Scottish maiden that her mother thinks she ought to be. But she's not an African girl either, she, but she grew up with Kukuyu children, and so she has a viewpoint that uh, puts her uh, with, uh, in a liminal space between a foot in one world and a foot in, in the other. And uh, she meets, uh, in the first book, she meets and falls in love with uh, 
uh, the man who becomes her future husband, and his name is Justin Tolliver, and he is he's the son he's the second son of an earl, and he's been in the military, which is what second sons did in those days. Mm-hmm. But he is um, his his father. That's the point where everybody, I think, lots of people have seen this on on uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, the people who had those great estates weren't making the money in, right. after the uh, so so he doesn't he doesn't have enough money to stay in Africa but he loves Africa so he wants to stay there and he becomes a policeman so he's a colonial policeman and, but he's got a foot in both uh, worlds too because he's he's nobility but he's serving on the administration which people who are were aristocrats just didn't do and the aristocrats looked down him so that was like worse than being a butler if you were a policeman it was like oh, shopkeepers children do that right. <laughs> so so there was that but there is also the uh, and and I he's I love this guy. His name is Kwai Labazo, and he is a uh, a tribal uh, policeman. He's an Askari who serves on the police force. But his problem is that his father was a Maasai and his mother was a Kukuyu, and he is not accepted by either tribe. Mm-hmm. So he's got a foot in two worlds, too. Right. And between the three of them, I get to... And I did this on purpose because I didn't want to celebrate the good old days of colonialism. (laughs) You know, I don't think a 21st century woman ought to be thinking that way. So I, I, uh, I chose the three of them to be my main characters because through one of their points of view or another, I can always look at the, what's going on in the world at the time, and without being anachronistic, I can uh, put a kind of 21st century uh, value system on it. Right, right. Uh, so that's why. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to, um, I just want to shift a little bit because I want us uh, to get to the last piece of the story. And then before we run out of time today, it goes fast. And that is how it does become a brings uh, comes to the 21st century world um so tell us about how you you know basically learned things from your research and your stories and got involved with a contemporary issue with the maasai girls today yeah i i um uh in the third in the series it's called the blasphemers Mm -hmm. and uh in that what's going on uh, from the colonial point of view, is that the Brits have decided to move the Maasai from uh, land that they had occupied for a millennium. And so I had to learn about the Maasai, because the Brits did do that, and it's one of the things I wanted to write about. Uh, I had to learn about the Maasai culture. And I came across this... Uh, practice of the Maasai's uh, and how they treat girls. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, and I, I became appalled by the fact that that's what they did uh, more than a hundred years ago. And then I find, find out, and, and actually the British missionaries were working against these practices starting in 1906. But they're still going on today. And, uh, and then I got involved with uh, 
supporting the work of an American missionary in Tanzania, working with Maasai girls. And then I met and uh, became friends with a woman in northern Kenya uh, in a place called Samburu, which is uh, also a, a section of the Maasai uh, culture. And, uh, and what happens with girls is sometime, uh, usually around when they're nine years old, uh, they are um, enticed uh, into a sexual relationship that's not marriage. Hmm. But by the time they are somewhere between 12 and 14, they're, they're circumcised, something that is called female genital mutilation, FGM. Mm-hmm. It's pretty horrible to have to say that out loud. I don't like to make people disgusted. But uh, And then they are sold into marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met a girl who's who was 12 years old and her father was uh, getting ready to have her circumcised and sell her to a 15, a 57 year old man as his fourth wife um, for a truckload of beer. They usually get cows or goats for their daughters, but they sell them. And there are lots of people. uh, And one of them is my friend, Sarah, uh, Lesamito in uh, Samburu, who is a teacher and is working with the local girls trying to protect them from, uh, uh, from FGM and forced marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's against the law for that to happen. It's been against the law for some time, but it's still going on. And I'm and now I have gathered around me some friends who are working with me to support Sarah in her uh, in her efforts to save those girls. Uh, I really I hope that I'm right about this. I'm an old lady now, but I really hope that the uh, the 21st century is going to become the century of the girl uh, and women. And there's mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot that's going on in this country and in other countries. It's not enough. We're not there yet, but if we can, if what we can do uh, is uh, release the capacity and the energy uh, of the females, and particularly starting when they're girls, get them educated uh, that uh, that uh, the female part of the human race is going to make a big difference to what happens to our planet next. Right. And you mentioned to me that one of the ways you were doing that was um, just finding a way to keep them in school, which was finding sanitary napkins for them, right? So that was really strange because when I first met Sarah, she was just starting with this effort. She's a teacher, and uh, and she told me that she was going to try to keep them in school, and she was working with them. And I said, what do you need? How can I help you? And I thought she was going to say supplies, you know, books, notebooks, pens. I thought she was going to say, do some, say something like that. And when I asked her, I said, what's the thing they need? She said, sanitary napkins. I, my jaw dropped. Uh, in the United States, generally speaking, uh, that's not an issue. But in Samburu, it is. It's a place where th- there are long droughts and 
they had no way of dealing with that. Uh, and they missed school for 75, they went to school 75% of the time, 25% of the time they couldn't go to school because they couldn't, it was too embarrassing for them to go to school. And so the boys had 25% more, actually, in that case, a third more education than they right, did. Right. And they, uh, and so I, I, I said, I'll, I'll find a way to do that. And I did. Right. And, and it cost me $16 a girl. Right. Uh, I drink a glass of wine that costs $16 when right. I'm in a restaurant. You right. know, it just yeah. seemed ridiculous right. that you could change a girl's life for $16. Right. But I did. You did. And, uh, I'm, and I'm sorry, we have to come bring this story to a close. But if people want to reach you and find out more about it, you can go to my website, royalresources.com, and click on 45 forward. And then you could have contact information uh, for Patricia and find out more about this. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Um, I hope to have you back and have an update at some point. Uh, at this point, folks, um, we're going to uh, shift to the end of our show, but be sure to join me next Monday at 12 noon, 3 p.m. Pacific uh, Eastern Time. We'll be talking with Evelyn Candell, an artist and teacher who's now a distinguished poet laureate, but started out her career as one of the few, the proud, the women Marines. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week. 